Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. From forest fires to microbes hanging in the air, we look at the cleanest air on the planet. So where exactly is the cleanest air on the planet and how do you even measure how clean the air is there? Plus, what does a forest fire do for not only air quality, but the release of carbon into the atmosphere and into the soil or ocean? And making a cheap and simple paper-based carbon dioxide detector. When you think about a forest fire, a huge continent-encompassing fire system like we see here in Australia, it produces and unleashes a lot of carbon by literally burning it turning it from nice plants and forests into, well, carbon dust runoff in waterways and pollution in the air, which eventually then settles and goes into water. So what happens to all that carbon that's unleashed from this burning? Carbon that was otherwise locked and sequestered inside living plants and the soil. Well, surprisingly, researchers from the University of East Anglia have quantified just how much of that carbon ends up, well, you guessed it, in the ocean. And they've published this in the journal Nature Communications. And what they found is that a lot of burnt carbon gets carried and flushed out by rivers. Once it goes through the rivers and through the waterway network, it ends up in the ocean. And all that carbon gets sequestered into the ocean. A large, large amount. It's almost a strange but unexpected quirk of the Earth's system in geological sense where it can trap carbon in the ocean in tens of millions of millennia. And that's pretty amazing to think about. Now, researchers collaborating on this paper included researchers from universities Exeter, Swansea, Zurich, Oldenburg, Florida, as well as researchers going through 78 rivers on every continent except for Antarctica. Now, all of this was coordinated by lead researcher Dr. Matthew Jones of the Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research. Now, as we talked about, fires burn a lot of things, a lot of carbon-based things, leaving behind a lot of materials left over as ash or charcoal. And this can really slowly break down to get into the soil. But the reason why we care about this burn carbon, because essentially now it's locked out of the atmosphere, at least for the short being, because the slow breakdown of this carbon charcoal doesn't actually release a lot of that stored carbon in the, in the basically the leftovers from the fire compared to the unburnt carbon. Now, unburnt carbon, when they compared it to burnt carbon, well, unburnt carbon breaks down pretty quickly, but burnt carbon, well, that takes 10 times longer to break down, especially when it's in the ocean rather than on land. So if any of that charcoal and leftover matter from the fires gets into a river or waterway, those rivers, like a conveyor belt, bring all that carbon from, well, the land down into the oceans. And since it takes 10 times longer for carbon when it's burnt to be broken down, and then it's buried in the ocean via the rivers, well, it just ends up basically sequestering huge amounts of carbon in the ocean. Now, to actually assess and quantify this, they took 409 observations from 78 different rivers across the world. And then they analysed how the burn fraction of dissolved carbon varies at different latitudes and in different ecosystems. They also tried to figure out what would happen if you scaled up their finding. 
And what they determined was that around 18 million tons of dissolved burned carbon are transported through our rivers each year into our oceans. Now, when you combine that with around huge amounts that's exported wind river sediments, you get to about 43 million tons of burned carbon per year, just from forest fires or other activities. And that's a huge amount. That's roughly around 12% of all carbon flowing through the rivers comes from burned vegetation. Now, fires do emit tons of carbon each year. A lot of that goes into smog and then the air and smoke. But they also hide a lot of that, leaving a lot behind around 250 million tons of burnt residue, like charcoal and ash. And about half of that gets into the long-lived form called black carbon. And then about a third of that ends up at the bottom of the ocean. So when you think about it, the actual way that the ocean and the rivers are all connected, storing this burnt byproduct of forest on the land, it shows how Earth normally manages to produce carbon, have it interact, have it produce into our atmosphere, but also have it trapped back down again as part of the large carbon cycle. So, of course, there's the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle, and now also the carbon cycle that we need to take a big picture of. Now, this doesn't mean that having a forest fire makes it easier or better to cope with climate change. It's not really the case here at all. But it does show the importance that rivers and oceans play in sequestering carbon naturally in the forms of burnt charcoal or left-behind ash, and how that helps keep carbon in the soils and locked in place and not in our atmosphere for long periods of time. This research was put together with a large number of collaborators from across the world published in the journal Nature Communications. talk about measuring carbon especially in our atmosphere one of the things that we want to get a good grip on is the measure of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere both in a macro environmental sense but also just in a general personal sense because increased exposure to carbon dioxide does not great things for your brain so in the general health and having good ventilation it's pretty useful to keep an eye on carbon dioxide as well as obviously the much more dangerous carbon monoxide Researchers from the University of Alberta, physicists in fact, have found a way to turn a simple piece of paper into, well, something that's very useful at measuring carbon dioxide. This was developed by Al Merger, a professor in the Department of Physics, and led by a graduate student, Hu Wang. They published it in the journal ACS Applied Materials and Interfaces. Now what they've developed is basically as what you can think of as like a litmus paper for carbon dioxide you can make a really sensitive carbon dioxide detector out of just a simple piece of paper. And you can see how if you had this piece of paper with the sensors on it, you could make mass and cheap sensors for measuring carbon dioxide or really any other gas using the same method. Now, the way the sensor works is it changes color based on the amount of carbon dioxide in the environment. Now, that's really important. It's like any other kind of litmus paper test, if you remember chemistry. It gives you an indication of, in some cases, like litmus papers used for pH concentrations or 
other indicants. In this case, the paper changes color based on the amount of carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide reacts with material in the paper, causing it to change color. And that is pretty handy because there's a lot of industry that can use carbon dioxide. So as I talked about before, monitoring the levels of carbon dioxide inside a building helps keep people healthier and safer. So a chimp and simple way to put these low-cost sensors for monitoring carbon dioxide all over a building, great. And the fact that it's paper-based means it's not only cheap, but it's a simple template for mass recyclable and it's paper. So, you know, it's not that damaging. It's degradable and it can be recycled. Now, carbon dioxide sensors for smart buildings or industrial settings is a really good thing because we can you also use a similar method to measure other gases. Now, the problem is with most carbon dioxide sensors at the moment, they're pretty expensive and they involve actual electronics, which involve rare earth metals and circuit boards and so on. But a paper-based method, that's just simple and efficient. Now, that shows that there's pretty powerful sensing ability using a paper-based sensor, and it's mass-producible. Now, of course, it needs to be designed and packaged and optimized further, especially the manufacturing process. But as a proof of concept for a gas sensor that's paper-based, well, it makes it incredibly tempting, especially for large office buildings. There might be a paperless office now, especially now that we're all working from home and going digital. But a paper-based sensor may be the key to help keeping your office safe and healthy. Some great research from the University of Alberta by lead author Hu Wang and researchers from the Department of Physics. All this talk about finding clean air and finding a nice place with nice fresh air, well, raise the question, what's the cleanest air on earth? That's a really interesting thing to ponder. That's what Colorado State University distinguished professor Sonia Kardenweiss and her research group have been studying by looking all the way across the world, trying to find that one spot with the cleanest of air. That's not actually what they were trying to do. They were doing a massive bioaerosol compositional study. And what they found is actually, well, a small patch of the Southern Ocean, south around 40 degrees south latitude, that's where you'll find the cleanest air. Now, this is part of the boundary layer that feeds the lower clouds over the Southern Ocean. And when they were studying this region, they found it free from all kinds of particles particularly aerosol particles. Now, aerosols are normally produced by human activity and transported through the jet streams and other wind currents all the way across the world. But when you come to the Southern Ocean, and particularly the boundary layer, the lower area of clouds, there's not very many aerosols at all. In fact, there's nearly none. That's particularly interesting. That's why Kytovice and her team published these findings in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, when you think about it, the Earth's air is incredibly interconnected. When we talk about chaos theory, the flapping of a butterfly's wings in one part of the world can lead to a hurricane in another. And that's an exaggeration, but it's a point that's trying to be made of the way the Earth's weather and climate are intrinsically linked, and they connect one region of the world all the way to the other side. A more tangible example is the El Nino pattern in the Pacific, 
which can lead to more rainfall in one side of the Pacific and less rainfall on the other, El Nino and La Nina. So if you want to find a remote place on Earth, going for the oceans around the Southern Ocean in Antarctica, that's probably the area least affected by humans out of everything, really. So that's what Kratavasa team tried to dig into, tried to discover how clean that air was and if there was anything in that air, where did it come from? And what they used as their diagnostic tool to understand the atmosphere in those regions was the bacteria in the air. As researcher Thomas Hill, who's a co-author on the paper, outlines, for example, the aerosols controlling the properties of SO clouds, Southern Ocean clouds, are strongly linked to the ocean biological processes. That Antarctica appears to be isolated from the southward dispersal of microorganisms and nutrients from the Southern Oceans. And what he means there is that when you look at the air above the Southern Ocean, it's kind of not getting dumped on by all the other continents sending their nutrients, their bacteria, their particles like aerosols down through the air into polluting that region. The Southern Ocean, despite having Australia and Asia and everything else around it, well, no, that doesn't lead to build up in the same way. How do they measure all of this? Well, they out on this ship, the Socrates Field Campaign, which left from South Tasmania and headed toward the Antarctic Ice Edge. And researcher on board that vessel, June Utica, who's the first author on this paper, actually measured the composition of airborne microbes captured as this ship made that journey. And you think that air is clean, but there's all kinds of microorganisms living in it, and they're dispersed over hundreds of thousands of kilometers and carried in the wind. So how do you track them and understand what they are? Well, that's where DNA sequencing comes in, because you can use this DNA sequencing, and that's what Yuataka did, to determine where those microbes came from. Were they marine? Were they sourced from the ocean? And what ocean did they come from, to be specific? And this kind of bacterial composition was differentiated into different broad latitudinal zones. When they crossed over different areas of latitude, they sort of ended up with different types of bacteria. Now, that means that aerosols, such from distant land masses and in human activities and pollution, were not traveling that far down south because they could see it when they analyzed all these air samples. In particular, looking at the impacts on the microbiological life. Now, if you compare this to the northern hemisphere, well, in the northern hemisphere, you see a lot of upward shifting of, my, of microbes and aerosols and other contaminants. So in the north, for example, you end up with this upwind process where most of the microbes in the northern hemisphere get sort of swept up towards the North Pole. And plants and soil are the main source of the particles that end up creating these super cool cloud droplets called ice nucleating particles. And this gets clouds that with increased reflectivity and you end up with more rain, which also increases the amount of sunlight reaching the surface and altering the Earth's radiative balance. But the Southern Ocean has it pretty much the opposite because the main source is sea spray emissions, dominating the most of the cloud-forming droplets, and which means that you don't get that same ice-nucleating particle concentrations that you do in the north. In fact, because it's coming from seawater, it's pretty much the lowest type of ice-nucleating particle concentration anywhere in the world. So the air of the Southern Ocean is so clean and there's very little DNA to work with. But by having a really good study of this over a long period of time and a long voyage, you can actually trace back the way in which airflow works, bring particles and microbes and lots of other things from one part of the world to another. And the Southern Ocean seems to be relatively clean, which is more than it can be said for the Northern Hemisphere's comparative areas. 
some great research published in the Journal of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences with the leader of the June Educate, Thomas Hill. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From carbon trapped in our oceans after a forest fire, all the way to finding the cleanest air in the planet in the Southern Ocean and a cheap paper-based sensor for detecting carbon dioxide. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.